Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. China has kept up its stance of pro-Russian neutrality throughout the invasion of Ukraine by the latter. Prior to the war, Russian President Vladimir Putin had publicly questioned the sovereignty and legitimacy of Ukraine in an essay titled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, published in July 2021. This rhetoric sounds eerily familiar to the stance of the Chinese government on Taiwan, and it begs the question of how much, if anything, the Russian invasion of Ukraine means for the cross-strait relations between China and Taiwan, and the prospect of a Chinese invasion of the island nation. My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and today I'm joined by Sharon Lee, an expert on strategic concepts and the foreign and defense policies of Taiwan and other Indo-Pacific nations. She's a senior lecturer at the Swedish Defense University and an associate research fellow in the Asia program at the Swedish Institute for International Affairs, as well as an adjunct fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Sharon. Thanks for having me, Johannes. Europe has been following the war in Ukraine with keen focus. Due to the close relationship between Russia and China, the situation lends itself perfectly for analogies with China's unresolved conflict with Taiwan. Before we dive into the Chinese and Taiwanese reactions to the conflict and its future impact, I would like to take a minute and ask, are the two territorial conflicts, so Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan, really comparable? Or are the analogies we see just fueled by assumptions in the European debate about Taiwan? So I would argue that some of the uh, parts of the conflict are comparable, but the majority um are some assumptions. What's comparable is that both Russia and China view um, Ukraine and Taiwan as domestic issues to be resolved, and that both of them are willing to use force to resolve the issue. Um, it is driven by two authoritarian leaders that have quite a political and, I guess, stake in their own pride to ensure that these conflicts are resolved on their own terms. But there's some assumptions that uh, should be kind of taken apart, because if we straight away assume that they're similar, um, we miss really important differences. So for instance, Taiwan is not a sovereign country. It doesn't have sovereignty in the same way that Ukraine has. But on the other hand, it does um, have a security guarantee or an informal security guarantee. And it does have advanced military transfers from the United States. So it's quite intertwined with um um, the United States and Washington. And the other part is that Taiwan's economy is integrated into the global economy and global markets in a very different way that Ukraine is. Taiwan has, as most people would know, um, quite advanced semiconductor and manufacturing capabilities, as well as they have an important role in um, advancing critical and emerging technologies, um, for instance, in the biomedical space and nanotechnology space. And so they play a very critical role in um, manufacturing components and exports of these components to advanced economies in a way that Ukraine didn't. So there are quite a few differences that need to be paid attention to, because if there were to be war over Taiwan, it would affect the global economy as well as the um, the regional security situation very differently. In the public conception of Taiwan, people often think of like this one big island off the coast of China, but it is actually surrounded by a multitude of small islets belonging to or claimed by Taiwan. Some are wedged between China and Taiwan, very close to the Chinese mainland, and others are situated right in the South China Sea. Um, what is their role and importance in this conflict between China and Taiwan? So those offshore islands of Taiwan are quite strategically important, not just because they represent uh, Taiwanese sovereign 
control or sovereignty over their landmass and their um, maritime claims, but also because particularly in the South China Sea, there are two islands. One is called Pratas Island and the other one is Taiping Island. They provide early warning to Taiwan in case of an invasion, as well as they've been able to provide early warning to um, Taiwan's partner in terms of the US and Japan. Taiping Island um is quite critical in the South China Sea because it has one of the largest natural air landing strips where you can actually land some interesting military aircraft and be able to um, monitor and surveil the South China Sea from there. It's an interesting question as well, Chinmen, Penghu and Matsu Islands within the Taiwan Strait because they are extremely close to China and Hong Kong. Um, and so control of those islands is also critical to mainland China in terms of how they can first get to Taiwan and further how can they project their navy and air force further out into the Western Pacific. So these islands, are, Taiwan has a vested interest to make sure they remain under Taiwan control. What we have begun to see is that China has tried to practice blockading certain offshore islands, particularly Pradas Island, to see um, how Taiwan would react, how Taiwan's partner in the US would react. The other island they're very interested in seeing how a partner of Taiwan would react is the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands in the East China Sea. So they're very interested in how Japanese defense planning would work if China also were to take Senkaku Diaoyu Island. Let us now turn to the Chinese and Taiwanese reactions to the war in Ukraine. Maybe start with uh, Beijing. What lessons does the Chinese government draw from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its progression in, in the war? So I would argue that Beijing in particular, um, they are learning a lot from how Western allies and partners are reacting to Russia, in particular the economic and technological domain, as well as the military support that Western allies are willing to give to Ukraine. There's a kind of interesting aspect in that they have been trying to learn a lot about how much they can buffer their own economy, as well as their own um, stock exchanges and their currency, um, how they can protect it from possibly first sanctions from the West, but also secondary sanctions. So what they are doing is they're trying to to see how much of the kind of digital infrastructure and their financial sector can withstand being separated from access to the Western banking system. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that they are learning um, where the vulnerabilities are in terms of who in Europe um, and what parts of Japan and Australia and the US are not willing to push through sanctions. So whether they can address or find support from those quarters in terms of, well, if they were to try to get support for their own activities in the Taiwan Strait, who can they lean on in that instance? The other area, as I mentioned before, is military support. So what they are learning right now and um, trying to adapt to is what kinds of equipment that Western allies and partners are willing to send to Ukraine and what they're not willing to send. And so this is going to play a huge calculation, for instance, in what kind of support they perceive Taiwan would have if they were to have conflict over um, the Taiwan island. And here they're um, also viewing kind of how Taiwan is looking at the support that's given to Ukraine. So Taiwan is now very seriously considering how they boost their asymmetric capabilities in terms of making it a very costly endeavor to the Chinese military if they did decide to annex Taiwan. So there are quite a few lessons the Chinese government are drawing from the reactions to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
you just alluded to the Taiwanese reaction to the war in Ukraine, so maybe we can just mm. move to that directly. Yeah, so the Taiwanese reaction to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, it is quite interesting because they are um, looking at, I guess, what they can do to boost their own resilience. Um, at the moment, they are looking at particularly civilian resistance, requisitioning parts of their civilian infrastructure, um, making civilians very aware of um you know, what they can do in the event of a conflict over Taiwan. So, for instance, because conscription is, um, or I guess volunteer service um, and basic military training, um, it was reduced to now four months and it's kind of a political debate of whether they would extend it again. Training certain civilians in Taiwan to still be able to contribute to any kind of effort to ensure that Taiwan can maintain their own sovereignty. So, for instance, in their infrastructure, maintaining um, parts of their industrial capacity um, in terms of economic integration, they are ensuring that they will remain integrated with China. They realize that if they completely decouple, first, it's not feasible for Taiwan. But secondly, they would also lose any kind of um, leverage over China, particularly because China is really dependent on particularly the Taiwanese semiconducting manufacturing industry, but also um, other advanced industries as well. So they have a vested interest in making sure that those links stay because they do believe that it will be a deterrent effect. As I mentioned before, their military assessment is that they now have to invest like um, Ukraine did in terms of very asymmetric capabilities in terms of mines, drones, um, surface-to-air missiles to make sure that any kind of possible invasion scenario, they can inflict a lot of damage but on the cheap. And the final kind of response that they've learned is which partners they can work with, uh, which partners they uh, can trust uh, more long term, as opposed to a kind of uh, knee jerk reaction of, well, if this can happen in Ukraine, then we now need to start talking to Taiwan. So which countries have long term invested in Taiwan and will continue to invest in Taiwan going forward? Could you go into a little bit more detail? Like what, what are the partners that are more invested in Taiwan? So Taiwan, um, of course, traditionally has always been invested in the US uh, very strategically. So Taiwan is very interested in making sure that those Thai stays, particularly in terms of um, making sure their advanced manufacturing in terms of semiconductors um, is linked to the US and that the US has a interest in maintaining that capacity. Another key partner is in particularly Japan. Taiwan is very aware now that Japan sees um, a Taiwan scenario as also affecting their historical claims on the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands and that China considers any kind of possible annexation as in also involving the Japan's um, claim over Senkaku Diaoyu. So they're really working together um, unofficially with Japan on what can be done to ensure that they can capably deter China from that kind of um, situation. They're also looking more and more towards Australia, which has changed its, um, they have a, always had a very hard assessment of China's ambitions in the Asia Pacific. So they've been in the last five, 10 years working uh, very hard in Canberra to ensure that those kinds of assessments about China's ambitions turn into some kind of tangible efforts with Taipei. One other area that they also are working on is to ensure that the West tries to support Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies, so they remain 
Taiwanese diplomatic allies and not Chinese diplomatic allies. Um, and that's kind of seen as a softer measure, not direct one, where if you provide support to some of Taiwan's less developed partners in Latin America and the South Pacific and um, make sure that those countries remain invested in the democratic governance aid model that Taiwan has provided with them, that you know Taiwan will not remain completely isolated and that Taiwan's um, recognition is not completely under threat from Beijing. Do you see in keeping diplomatic allies for Taipei also kind of a need for action for Western partners? Um, looking at, for example, the Solomon Islands that more or less recently, like 2019, switched from being in diplomatic relationship with Taiwan to China, now is discussing uh, the possibility of a Chinese naval base in the Solomon Islands, which would be right at the door of Australia. So there seem to be like tangible consequences if uh, countries change the diplomatic relationship. Do you see any any necessity for action for Western partners of Taiwan here? Yes, I, I think there is necessity of action and uh, realistically it would have started maybe 10 years ago. But unfortunately, we're at the situation we are now, particularly those partners in Latin America and South Pacific, where they're so close to the United States and they're so close to Australia. And these aren't very expensive uh, initiatives that can be invested in. A lot of these partners though of Taiwan now are very disenfranchised uh, with how other uh, democratic partners are behaving now in terms of, well, as soon as you see China at the door, then you want to be involved. So what exactly is this offer that you do have? Is it actually a long term that's going to be beneficial to our communities? Are you going to put very heavy criteria in our access to aid and development? You know, what are the standards that are there? Because the Taiwanese government has had a quite a long standing relationship with a lot of these countries um, and those remaining diplomatic allies, um, if they were to be flipped, it has been very easy for China to just come in and replace with Chinese representatives. Um, and then as we saw in the Solomon Islands, you know, it led to quite some domestic instability where there was a breakaway province that wanted to remain in partnership with Taiwan. But the Sokovara government wanted to remain in partnership with China uh, with quite a bit of checkbook diplomacy. And of course, the theories of a dual use facility that China can use. But because um, the Solomon Islands traditionally have, you know, relied on um, Australian peacekeepers, there is quite an image, particularly in Australia, of, well, did we let this get out of the bag and will there be a situation in five years where Australian peacekeepers will be protecting, you know, a Chinese dual use facility. Um, and that's kind of a worst case scenario. So a lot more can be done, a lot more that shows kind of a long term effort that's not just a shows a knee-jerk reaction to China and their investment in the region. A lot more can be done in terms of two or three partners working with those governments, uh, working with those um, communities to make sure that um you can support the sustainable and development goals the Taiwanese government has been investing in in those areas. Let us turn to disinformation. It has been a major component of the Russian strategy prior to and during the invasion of Ukraine. It also plays a big role in the conflict between China and Taiwan, is that correct? Yes, it has, um, and it's been quite a, a long-standing one. And Taiwan actually has a lot to demonstrate to others of how to combat disinformation. China has historically always targeted the broad spectrum and the broad media spectrum in Taiwan, trying to flood a lot of Taiwanese social media 
outlets. Um, it's also very tried to target um, a very popular messaging app line in Taiwan with messages about, um, you know, what Beijing believes are their intentions in Taiwan. You know, they also have been known to flood Taiwanese information channels about Chinese military activities. So often a coordinated campaign when China does military activities in the Taiwan Strait, then they send their own information about what happens into Taiwanese channels. A lot of it, though, hasn't been that successful. So what they have tried to do is they've tried to um, play parts of the Taiwanese political system against each other. So targeting um, kind of the extreme green wing, which is the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party that's in power now, and the extreme right wing, which is the kind of pro-business blue Kuomintang party to kind of show that there's disharmony in Taiwan's electoral system and that the Taiwanese citizens can't trust either side to be in the best interests of Taiwanese citizens. So they're trying to make it um, show to the Taiwanese people that actually the Chinese government's model is better than what Taiwan has now um, and that they should invest in a kind of more orderly one closer to the Chinese governance system. Um, in some times they have been successful, other times they haven't. Like they were able to successfully spread the rumor about current President Tsai Ing-wen's qualifications from the London School of Economics to be fake and that went right through the media to the point where um, LSE had to issue a disclaimer to say that no, they were real. The way that Taiwan has combated this is they have had very high media literacy efforts across Taiwan. They have a very effective digital minister, Audrey Tang, who has quite an effective campaign of um, uh, humor over rumor, where she's tried to make jokes out of all of the clumsy attempts that China has had to put rumors in the Taiwanese system. And they have used a lot of um, Chinese attacks on parts of Taiwan's digital infrastructure and fed it into AI and big data and um, tried to um, kind of do a kind of machine learning approach to how um, China's spreading disinformation through. And they have been willing to share that kind of data on a very limited basis uh, with Japan and sometimes with the US. That sounds like something that we could use here in Europe too. It <laughs> <laughs> is a very interesting um, question. I mean, they are more and more open to sharing these strategies with European partners. You know, more and more so, Taiwan is becoming transactional. They want to know that if they do share this kind of information or they do share certain technology or they do share certain intellectual property, that they will get something back from it, um, particularly with partners they have historically not been very close with, and that includes certain major European partners. What lessons can European decision makers take from the changing dynamics in the China and Taiwan conflict and, and what kind of things can they do to contribute? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, it's quite an interesting question because uh, now more and more that the Taiwan question has come up, there seems to be a large assumption that um, conflict is inevitable um, in the same way that conflict um, emerged in Ukraine, that conflict is inevitable in Taiwan. I don't think that's the case. There are multiple different scenarios that can happen in the um, Taiwan Strait. Um, and if you just assume that conflict will happen, often that actually helps Chinese thinking about it because they do believe that uh, a lot of major countries are, are, f are fearful of another war and that they will be exhausted by the Ukraine situation. The US in particular has already been exhausted by the wars in Afghanistan. Um, but actually, if you consider that there's multiple scenarios that can happen, there's actually a lot more actions and 
um, that can be taken now to deter Chinese activities in the Taiwan Strait. So conflict is not really inevitable. For instance, there are a lot that can be done with Taiwan in the unofficial space, not just, as you mentioned before, supporting their remaining diplomatic allies, but ensuring that Taiwan does remain very well integrated into the global supply chains and into the global economic system. Taiwan and China both realize they can't decouple from each other or decouple from the global economic system as a whole. And that actually can provide a deterrent effect um, because, you know, there is broad thinking now in um, China that and, and in Taiwan that if there was to be war in the Taiwan Strait, that Taiwan would probably damage those industries to the point where the Chinese don't have control over them. So there is a kind of thinking there that, well, if you do really want to kind of um, ensure that those industries remain um are viable over the long term, that they're sustainable, that you ensure that Taiwan can maintain them um, and that has a strong deterrent effect there. I think politically, a lot can be done as well to support Taiwan. Um, you know, they do have a lot to offer in terms of, you know, what they do know about disinformation and foreign interference because they have been on the forefront uh, for a very long time. They also know very well how to work with a lot of the other Indo-Pacific partners in the region. Japan, Taiwan, Australia, um, even South Korea, they all play uh, big roles in learning about how to adapt policies towards China while keeping economic ties very strong. Um, and the four have quite strong and different pictures when it comes to this. And if you put it together, there's a lot that Europe can learn from, you know, how these very uh, frontline um, economies, frontline governments have dealt with it. Not only how to buffet certain parts of the economy, but how they can diversify into Southeast Asia and um, Central Europe and into Latin America. And they, a lot of them have long-standing relationships there. Militarily as well, there are areas where support to Taiwan, um, you know, yes, it seems controversial, but there's parts of the military and in terms of um, very cheap systems that can be given to Taiwan are ones that aren't like major components to submarines or um, major components to um, aircrafts, uh, fighter jets and um, other kind of traditional equipment that Taiwan doesn't need so much, but other cheap capabilities that can be invested in Taiwan that Taiwan would need now that would create a deterrent. And the the whole logic of, well, we can't do that because we'll get a reaction from China that will hurt us. I think that that logic has to be reversed because if you don't do it, then China is likely to be more emboldened because they believe that the military priority is so strong. So there are some very kind of cheaper military kind of capabilities that can be um, exported to Taiwan. Do you think that like human to human interactions uh, programs and stuff are playing a role as well or is that too soft? Uh, no, I definitely think so. I think um, it's great to see that um, particularly after um, the change in the last five years where, I mean, it was very unfortunate about what happened in Hong Kong with the overturning of one country, two systems. But a lot of the journalists, a lot of people to people contacts that were in Hong Kong went to Taiwan. So there's a, a, a now a a lot greater awareness of going to Taiwan, um, doing these kind of study trips to Taiwan and seeing what Taiwan is about. A lot of the journalists that are based in Taiwan that were previously based in Hong Kong are now writing a lot more openly about Taiwan's contribution to the role and why it has been important to make sure that at least there's, um, there's the Taiwanese democracy should be able to continue in the way it has now. Because in particular, Taiwan has invested a lot in 
I guess their own democratic credentials and a lot in the kind of freedom of speech area, freedom of religion, freedom of relationships. And this has been, you know, not just part of their strategy, but also part of the development of their identity um, to make sure that they do do look and actually are separate from mainland China. So I think those human to human um and kind of those um, trips to Taiwan are really important because maybe five, ten years ago, there was very little travel to Taiwan from um, kind of higher level um, uh, decision makers that were willing to go there and actually understand how it is different. Yeah. Uh, on a very human to human and personal <laughs> note, um, thank you very much for your time and insight, Sharon. Thank you very much, Johan. Um, you can follow Sharon's work on the website of the Swedish Defense University at fhs.se. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.